This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Katana The blade is unlike any you have ever seen. Three feet long and slightly curved, it comes to a fine point. It's been polished to a mirror sheen and marked with strange runes. The single edge seems impossibly sharp. You might cut your eye just by looking at it closely. The two-handed grip is protected by an ornate square guard. The merchant notices you eyeing the sword. You've a good eye for weapons. That blade comes from a great swordsmith far beyond the eastern mountains. It's said he worked ten years honing the edge, and that it is sharp enough to cut the wind. He called it katana, and it's worth a king's ransom. But for a skilled warrior like you, I can be convinced to negotiate. It never fails. There's always that one player that wants to play a samurai. Well, actually, there's always that one player that wants to play a ninja. But after you get done telling that player that they can't play a ninja, they fall back on the samurai. And when you disallow that, they tell you what they were really after. They really just wanted a katana. Any gamer will tell you that the best sword in this or any other universe is the katana. Everyone knows it. Katana are just the best. They are super sharp and super deadly, right? I mean, we could cite countless examples from various video games. We could discuss the ludicrous over-the-top gore fests of Quentin Tarantino. And we've all seen at least one version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But let's try to remain focused, for once, on Dungeons and & Dragons and its cousins. For a long time, whenever the katana showed up in D&D, it was pretty much the best single-handed weapon that existed. Third edition calmed down a little, treating them as nothing more than bastard or hand-to-half swords, with the caveat that they always got a bonus for masterwork quality. By the by, did you know that the bastard sword was also called the hand-to-half sword? Just consider that a bonus word of the week. Third edition's treatment of the katana as no more powerful than a comparable western sword except insofar as it was always of exceptional quality is probably the fairest. See, the katana is not the sword to end all swords at all. It is not the equivalent of a metal lightsaber from a far off land. It was just a sword. But it was a sword with particular quirks that it inherited from the land and culture that created it. In short, the katana that we know today was forged by the history and technology of feudal Japan. First of all, let's just make sure we all know what a katana is. A katana is a single-edged, slightly curved sword approximately two to three feet long. 
The blade itself was generally quite slender, the grip was long enough to accommodate one or two hands, and the grip was protected by a square or circular metal guard known as a tsuba. The katana was an evolution of an earlier sword with a more pronounced curve, the tachi. And conveniently enough, historians know this happened because Japanese swords are labeled. We kid you not. And the tachi became the katana so that the label would be facing the right way up. See, warfare was changing in Japan around the 1400s. And we'll get to why in just a little bit. But this created a situation where samurai, Japanese knights, were fighting each other on the battlefield. When that happened, skill and speed were the deciding factors. Basically, in sort of a quick-draw fashion, whoever could get the first cut in would usually win. Until that point, the samurai wore their swords, their tachi, thrust through sash-like belts, their oba, and they would wear them with the blade facing down. But some clever samurai realized that if he wore his sword with the blade facing up, he could draw the blade and immediately go into an upward slash, shaving precious seconds off the whole draw sword, ready sword, kill opponent process. This was referred to as wearing the blade katana style, or cutting up style. But Japanese sword makers had a problem. They signed their blades. Their tradition was to sign the side of the blade that was facing away from the samurai when the sword was worn. It was good advertising. But when the samurai started wearing their swords upside down, the sword makers had to start signing the other side of the blade. So we can pretty much pinpoint the switch from tachi to katana. Meanwhile, the curve of the blade became less pronounced because it was easier to wear and draw katana style if the blade had less of a curve. But as for why the curve existed at all, that comes from the fact that katana are actually kind of terrible swords. Okay, that's overstating the case. They aren't terrible swords. In fact, they are incredibly well-made swords. If you know exactly how to use one without breaking it. And if they are made by someone with a lot of patience and a lot of talent. But why is that? because the Japanese were working with pretty crappy steel. You might remember from an earlier episode that steel is iron with just the right amount of carbon. Carbon strengthens the steel. Too little, and the steel loses its strength. It bends, it warps, it loses its edge, and so on. But too much carbon makes the steel brittle, prone to shatter. So the trick to making good steel is controlling the carbon content and Japanese swordsmiths had crappy iron to work with and a lot of trouble getting the carbon content right. So Japanese swordsmiths developed two different techniques. First, they would mix different qualities of steel, weld them together, and then fold them and beat them to mix them. This helped dry out the impurities and even out the carbon content. And this technique led to those stories about how Japanese swordsmiths would fold the blade thousands and thousands of times to make the katana sharp enough to cut a piece of silk delicately draped over the blade. Sadly, these are myths. In truth, most katana were folded 15 to 20 times, and it wasn't done to give them a super keen edge. 
it was done to make the steel less garbage. In point of fact, too keen an edge was a dangerous thing for a sword. See, to hold a really, really sharp edge, you need really, really hard metal. And as we've already discussed with that delicate carbon balance thing, super hard metal capable of holding a super keen edge is also easy to shatter at the worst possible time. Like, say, when it meets another sword in the heat of battle. The other technique the swordsmiths used was differential quenching, which is also often called differential heating or differential tempering. This involved heating and cooling different parts of the sword individually rather than all at once. See, heating and cooling, tempering and quenching, can be used to change the properties of metal. So, if you apply those techniques to certain parts of the sword, you can have metals with different properties in the same sword. Say, the spine of the weapon, the part that has to resist shattering, can be a little lighter and softer. And the edge of the weapon, the part that has to hold a nice sharp edge, can be harder and more brittle. Now, these techniques were precise, complicated, and expensive. As was the iron ore necessary to make the blades, Japan just wasn't swimming in iron. And that meant that sword making was an art. And it was continually refined. You literally couldn't have a low quality katana because it would be useless. And that's why 3rd edition D&D probably got it the closest. It's just a sword, but it's a sword made by a master. But let's talk about that player that wanted to play a ninja with a katana. And let's talk about Leonardo, the Ninja Turtle, not the painter and inventor. Ninja did not use katana. Only one cast in Japan used the katana. In point of fact, eventually, it was only legal for one cast to even have a sword in public. That cast was the samurai. And that grew out of a very complex political situation in Japan. Japanese history is divided into several periods, the more recent of which are named for the city which housed the capital of the Japanese Empire. From this, you might gather that the capital of Japan moved around a lot, and you'd be right. The year 710 saw the beginning of the Nara period, during which Japan's first true permanent imperial capital was founded at, you guessed it, Nara. During the previous period, the Asuka period, a powerful family called the Soga had managed to claim the throne of Japan after a series of disputes. The family was a big fan of some new ideas coming from across the water from China. Among them, Buddhism and Confucianism. They had also heard good things about giving up the whole warring clan method of rulership in place of a strong central government. Ultimately, they crafted a complex constitution and a series of reforms for the government of the Japanese Empire. And while the Soga clan was destroyed, the reformations, the Taika-era reforms, continued to take hold. 
Thus, a strong central government ruled by an imperial court in Nara had power. But things began to change. In 794, the capital was moved from Nara to Hyankyo, also known as Kyoto. During the Heian period, while the courtly aristocracy flourished, the Fujiwara family managed to get control of the imperial line. Basically, they married their daughters to the imperial heirs and were able to rule as the regents of the empire. Obviously, this created some ill will toward the Fujiwara family from pretty much everyone who wasn't a part of that family. Meanwhile, wealthy private estates, known as Shoin, were growing in power and wealth, especially because of their tax-exempt status. These powerful estates controlled a great deal of wealth and eventually local governmental power. You might recognize this as the feudal model that proved so popular for keeping power in the hands of the landed lords in Europe at the same time. With frustration growing against the emperor, who was controlled by the Fujiwara family and the growth in power of local lords called Daimyo, it was only a matter of time before someone did something very foolish or very clever. In this case, it was the emperor himself, Shirakawa, who did the very clever thing. Realizing he was a puppet of the regency, he abdicated the throne and established his own shadow government. At first, he sought to weaken the Shoin, the private estates, which were keeping much of the wealth of Japan from the imperial government. But in the end, he started his own estate. And thus began the Kamakura period of Japanese history, the period of true Japanese feudalism. Economic and political power became decentralized and held by landed lords who demanded military service of their vassals and, in return, granted fiefdoms to those who served well. What does all of this have to do with Katana? Well, you had these wealthy nobles, and there was a lot of infighting. In the West, when that happened, you saw the rise of the knight, noble-born, wealthy officers who could afford the best military equipment that money could buy and spent all of their time training to be the best. And in Japan, you had the samurai, Noble-born, wealthy officers who could afford the best military equipment that money could buy and spent all of their time training to be the best. Originally, the samurai were called bushi, which means to serve or to accompany, which gave rise to the word bushido, the warrior code of the samurai that was based on the Buddhist and Confucian morals that had become so popular in Japan. They were armed with the katana and the wakazashi. Remember, these weapons were tremendously expensive, but they also required a great deal of training to use effectively. See, even despite all of the clever swordsmithing, the fact is the katana was still prone to breaking, especially when it ran up against another blade. A trained swordsman using a katana had to learn how to use it just right, with deft skill rather than raw power to keep from shattering the blade. And so, the katana became a symbol of both wealth and skill. It was the perfect weapon for the samurai. Over time, it became a symbol of their honor and their worth to their lord. 
But the interesting thing about this story is that, although the samurai only rose to power as a result of the failing of the imperial government at the end of the Heian period, they only existed because of the same government. The samurai first came into prominence nearly two centuries before. The Emperor Kamu in the late 8th century had to put down a rebellion because he wanted to expand his rule to northern Honshu. But his armies were routed by the more disciplined and motivated Imishi people of that region. So, he empowered the leaders of several regional clans, who he called Shogun, to serve him as an elite warrior caste. They became skilled in mounted combat and archery, and this group became the emperor's preferred tool for dealing with rebellions. The title of Shogun was only ever meant to be temporary and was not imbued with any political power. But flash forward a few centuries, and Japan is now divided into warring states, each ruled by Shogun and their elite super warrior vassals, the Samurai. But how can you use all of this in your game? Well, we won't tell you not to use katana in your game. And we won't tell you not to make them awesome. Katana are awesome. We've all played the games and seen the movies, and there is something mystical about that curved, single-edged blade that makes a sound when you draw it. And super sharp weapons from a foreign nation that are so sharp they can cut light? That's the stuff of fantasy anyway. But remember that the katana is the product of its unique history and culture. It is, in the end, just a sword. It was as important militarily and culturally as, say, the longbow was in medieval Europe, and represented much the same thing. Wealth, training, and military superiority. So maybe ask yourself why the katana in your world is different from the bastard sword, and what that says about the people who use it. And for goodness sake, stop giving ninja katana. It just isn't right. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and madadventurers.com.